The Talking to Ourselves podcast is brought to you by The One Club, the world's leading nonprofit organization recognizing creative excellence in advertising and design. Hey, coming to you from JSM Music in New York City, I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum. Today, my guest, the wonderkind, Ari Weiss, Chief Creative Officer of DDB North America. Before joining DDB, Ari spent five years at BBH, where he took the helm as Chief Creative Officer at the age of just 33, leading campaigns for Axe, PlayStation, and Netflix, and winning a pile of awards, including Integrated Grand Prix at Cannes. Ari cut his teeth at Cliff Freeman, BBDO, Wyden Kennedy, Goodby, and 180 LA, working alongside and learning from industry legends. Since the time of this interview, Ari's partner, Wendy Clark, has been promoted to global president and CEO of DDB. And some of the work you'll hear Ari make reference to is enjoying great success, with DDB North America recently winning two gold Andes and 13 DNAD pencils. And for the first time in 20 years, DDB is back on the Ad Age A-list. He's always been one of my favorite people in the industry to glean insight and inspiration from. This is my friend, Ari Weiss and I, talking to ourselves. I already know where you're from and your family situation, but we've never had this conversation with literally tens of dozens of listeners tuning in. So where are you from and, and what did your parents do? Well, Amid Farhang, I'm from uh, Berkeley, California. Um, my parents moved to California from New York uh, to be hippies. They were professional hippies for a while. Um, then they started trading... Native American jewelry on Telegraph Avenue, which ended up leading into uh, actual real jewelry business uh, that they they ran for twenty some odd years. Which means their kids got to eat real food eventually. Yeah, yeah. I know Jews in the jewelry business. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, they they went off script, but uh, it all worked out. Um, you were the oldest of three siblings. Would you say that you were the CCO of the Weiss children? Yeah, four actually four oldest of four siblings. Um, yeah, I would, I would say I was probably the chief operating officer, perhaps. Did you beat up your siblings? Uh, my my my, the second oldest, Adam. We we went at each other quite a bit. Um, but but then then came Laura. Uh, that wasn't that wasn't fair or the right thing to do. Uh, and then my youngest brother was nine years younger, which also was neither fair nor the right thing to do. Yeah, you fight with a sibling, and then at a certain age, you have the same fight you've been having your whole lives. Then mid-fight, you realize, like, are we still doing this? And like, we're old enough now that like we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna like crack a rib. Yeah, someone's gonna get hurt. Yeah. What did twelve-year-old Ari Weiss want to do with his life? Probably play video games. I think as a profession. Pro- probably the wizard. I think yeah. that came out around mm. then. Um, yeah, I, th- I was I was definitely very into video games for a long time. What was the game? Mike Tyson's Punch Out was up mm. there. Um, Super Mario Brothers, Zelda, obviously NES. What were some pop culture influences that you had as a kid before you even knew that this was a profession that sometimes you find uh, sort of seeping into your creative taste as you decide what you like and you don't like today? Yeah, I think um, that's a good question. Um, I think. TV was was a relatively kind of TVs and movies was a relatively big like cultural event in our family. Like we definitely gathered around to watch TV and and made events of you know going to see movies you know as a family. Um, so I think I just got into storytelling and and, and that kind of stuff at, at a pretty early age. My parents probably not now as a parent looking back you know they they let us watch Married with Children at a relatively young age and. 
that probably wasn't the right thing to do, but in, in a weird way, like it informed kind of early comedy, kind of edgy kind of comedy, I think. Um, looking back on it, I'm not sure it's terribly funny. Um, but, it, you know, it had a moment, you know, when, when it came out. Um, Wonder Years, uh, you know, that, that kind of TV. Um, you know, basically any Spielberg movie, you know, obviously, you know, tremendous impact. Um, I do think video games, I think, you know, once you could start to control narratives, that, that became, you know, quite interesting. Music videos, I mean, back then when a Michael Jackson video would premiere, that was a pretty big deal. Like, it was actually an event, you know, at 8 o'clock on whatever it was, NBC or ABC. Black or white, right yeah. after The Simpsons. Yeah, and it was, I mean, that was like, that was that was <laughs> culture. That was that was like what was happening in those moments. I think, you know, I guess my parents always pretty pretty high, like, uh, evaluation on that stuff, and and that was probably why I ended up chasing it, you know, to some to some degree. They're bringing all these shows back. They're bringing Roseanne back. They're not bringing <laughs> Married with Children back. No, that nor should they. Although now he's on uh, was it Modern Family and yeah. killing it. What a what a perfect way to repent yeah. for <laughs> for the sins of Married with Children than to create Modern Family. Yeah. All right, so Michael Jordan famously got cut from his high school basketball team, yeah. and then overcame that adversity. Uh, and that was a formative experience for him. You sent your book to BBH in 1999 and never got called back and then later became CCO. So my question is, do you think it's fair to compare yourself to Michael Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I think he had a lot of admirable qualities. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, he's just one man and, you know, it's basketball, it's not advertising, so it can't be at the same standard, I don't think. But, oh, the other way? You mean the other way? No, I would not compare myself to Michael Jordan. All right, so... We were joking about, you know, in your early career, you bounced around quite a bit and got to work at some of the best agencies um, that have ever done it. Um, celebrated agencies, Cliff, Wyden, Goodby, BBDO, 180LA, BBH. And I wonder, you know, it's it's rare to have, to experience all of these agencies. Is your takeaway from that that there, there are many ways and many creative cultures that get to great work? Or is your takeaway that there's sort of a way and a culture that gets to great work? Yeah, it's funny. I think... I think every agency has their own kind of unique flavor as we're as we're drinking what is it bourbon Whiskey. Don't say the brand no one is know, no I'm, not, I'm still I'm still I'm trying not. to get sponsors for this no freebies <laughs> Uh you know I think I think we're all bourbons we're just different labels you know so I think there are there are kind of subtle differences and I think there are cultural differences and I think there are um sometimes even you know Spiritual sounds a little bit highfalutin, but spiritual differences. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all trying to ultimately do the same thing, kind of the same way. Um, so I, I, I would say nuances, you know, across agencies, not not drastic differences. Yeah, it all comes down to the people. I mean, we work with partners all the time, you know, in the production community, and you know, there's tons of great production companies. It all comes down to who you're, who who's the exact team you're working with, and I think. The same goes for for most great agencies. It's just such a benefit to kind of like get a window into how Dan Wyden works, how David Lubar works, how you know Jeff Goodby works. You were a CCO at a really young age when you first took the job at BBH, and I wonder in those in those early days when you found yourself in new situations where maybe you sort of didn't know how to act. Was there one creative leader in particular who you found yourself trying to do sort of a an impression of just to survive the moment? Well, I think. Early on, when I when I first left, so so I worked with Eric Silver for 
about seven years across three different my first three different agencies. Um, and when I when I left him, uh, I tried to do him, and I I failed miserably. Um, and and you know the lesson coming out of, out of that was, you know, take the principles of it and apply it in a way that you know is authentic to yourself. Um, so, you know, I, I'd like to think that kind of after I learned that lesson, you know, it became more about learning from each person and their strengths and trying to, you know, apply the strengths and leave the weaknesses. And, you know, of course, in doing so, you, you know, develop your own strengths and weaknesses. Um, but I think, I think I probably called on different people for different things. You know, there are some, some people who were incredibly good at selling ideas. There were some people who were incredible with their creative teams or some people um, that the production community just loved um, and you know you, you, you do your best to try to put it all together I guess yeah by the standards of the industry you're a very young CCO now a DDB and um, you are a really young CCO at BBH does does your age relative to your colleagues do you find it informing your management style in any way or, or, or were there any like pitfalls of being a young CCO that you can remember in particular yeah, I mean, I think again at first when you're when you're trying to do it, I think, um, you know, I, I I probably made the mistake of um, falling on the on the title to to kind of give the authority, and I would I would, I would try to leverage that. And I think what you learn very quickly is that um, you're not there to leverage your point of view, but you're there to actually enhance other people's point of views and ultimately protect their thinking. Um, so I think, you know, you learn that actually, and it's cliche, but I think you learn that in giving away the power, you actually, you know, get it back. Um, and you get it back in a much more impactful way because you're actually driving, you know, a team. And I guess at the end of the day, that's leadership versus, you know, trying to be a dictator. Um, so that was, that was definitely a lesson I learned, you know, relatively early on. And I think with the age, you know, I probably had some more headwinds you know, than, than other people would have who, who, you know, were a little bit older. Um, but again, you know, it was a good lesson to learn because I think, I think any, any real leader has to go through that at some point or another. You're an old soul, but I wonder if there were any moments where you, there was immature emails or immature feedback that you wish you could have back. <laughs> oh, of course. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, my my wife is uh, the absolute best scorekeeper of, uh, <laughs> of of the trials and tribulations of, of my career, um, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's we we were actually just talking about a few of them the other day. I mean, there's there's a good ten or twenty things that uh, I would I would beg to take back, um, <clears throat> but you know I think again you learn from those mistakes. So it's one of those like, and this is the conversation we were having. You know, do you have to make those mistakes? Do you have to step on those landmines? To develop, you know the the right way to do it. You're yeah. not, you know, you're not going to be f flawless. And I think um, the the you know evolution is about learning from the mistakes, and hopefully you just can learn from them quickly. So yeah. um, I think I, you know I've stopped trying to not make mistakes. You know, mistakes are going to happen. I just try to learn from them quicker. Do you guys, when you first met with Wendy Clark about the DDB job, did you guys talk about? mistakes about sort of how you would respond as a team to failures and not making the same mistake twice. Cause it's sort of like, it's unrealistic to think that you're going to 
take on a job that despite having been a CCO at BBH for four years, this is a way bigger operation. There's more employees, there's more creatives, um, and there is going to be an element of trial by fire. Was that sort of part of the interview process when you and her first started talking? I mean, I guess not explicitly. I mean, the big piece of it for us, you know, as we started talking was, um, are we aligned in our point of view of what we want this to be? Um, because I think at the end of the day, the failures and the mistakes and all that, I mean, that that's inevitable. So to kind of start really talking about that in depth, like we know we're, we know we're going to make mistakes. Right. I mean, we're, 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 we're on a journey uh, where we're really trying to, you know, kind of resurrect an icon. Um, and in doing so, you know, yeah, you're going to make mistakes as you do it and you're going to have some successes as you go. But if you're not both, you know, perfectly dead set on where you're headed, um, it's going to be too easy to divide you and there's no way this will ever work. So I think, you know, we knew our success would, would kind of live and die on the unification of this team. And it's why it became so important for me that, you know, I wasn't just running a creative department, you know, or, or the creative side of a network, that I was actually running uh, the heart of the creative business and, and, and the network. So. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's really what we worked on the most, you know, in coming in and, you know, there were, there were even a handful of kind of technical and logistical structural changes that, you know, were kind of dependent on coming in because we knew that would be the only way to make it happen. So yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, you get better and better at doing your homework and you get better and better at setting yourself up to have that right partnership. And then, you know, the rest of it's just luck because at the end of the day, you know, we went on, I don't know, 10 dates, and they lasted about three hours each. And, you know, then we decided to get married. And I think that's, uh, you know, you hope it, you hope it works out. I know. love hearing you phrase it as resurrect an icon for some of the youngins out there who don't know. For some of the youngins out there who don't know, the B in DDB is for Bill Bernbach, who, you know, was an architect of the modern, you know, agency structure that we all still adhere to today and developed the art director, copywriter team that most agencies still use. Do you feel like you have to sort of reckon with the ghosts in the hallway as you try to make your own mark? <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, uh, so kind of my first week there, they showed me to my office and, and it's actually Bill Burnbeck's, you know, original office. And no pressure. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a museum and there's an old kind of a faded sun bleached oil painting of him that hangs above the couch. And, um, you know, it's it's someone kind of equated it to being handed Lennon's guitar and say you know play a nice song and you know you're just not going to do it. Um, so there was definitely I mean the first couple of weeks it was it was like I would throw up probably once a day and just kind of swallow it and and then head in and try to figure it out. Um, but it was definitely anxiety um, producing. Um, <clears throat> I think I think after a while though you started to see it as permission to be you know, a bit of a disruptor because, you know, there's work on the walls. There's all this, you know, famous Volkswagen work and, and levees and, 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 and all sorts of stuff. Um, but you realize, like, that was really radical and disruptive work at the time. And I think, you know, you asked the question earlier about what did you learn at all, you know, the agencies that you've been to. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes to white space and disruption and, you know, you know telling a brand story in a unique way. And then, you know, I came and I landed in this, you know, older agency by, um, you know, definition against all these other kind of boutique places that I'd been at. 
and you go, oh my god, this is the playbook that they all copied. Right. Like this is this is actually the inventor of it, and I I, I think that is that is the reality. The reality is you know the creative revolution was kind of coined and started you know at four thirty seven Madison Avenue, and and um, everybody else kind of modernized it, and now you know we'd like to take that original foundation and 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 put it into the future. You've been at DDB for just over a year now. Yeah, just about a year. Um, a much larger operation, 17 offices across North America, way more creatives, way more employees. Does the difference in size alone make it a vastly different job? Um, in execution, yes. Not in not in principle. I mean, the principle is always the same. The principle is, um, are we driving to better and better work? And are we providing value through that work to our clients? You know, um, I think that... Um, how you do it at scale is is vast vastly different, and that's been I, I would say that's been the biggest learning curve um, at DDB. Um, you know, when you're at you know a BBH or or another kind of smaller you know creative boutique, um, you can kind of keep your hands on everything, um, right. and and you know you can really kind of um, stay involved. Um, you know, when when you have as many clients as we do and as many offices and and employees as we do um you know you, you you have to pick and choose you just you can't be on everything at all times so you know my my general strategy has been obviously you know new business is, is, is a critical part of this role so so new business takes up i'd say about a third of the job um i would say um fires in general right take up maybe another third of the job and then the final third of the job is kind of uh, the opportunities that look like they can kind of drive the resurgence um in the in the most progressive way possible um and 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 focus on that so you know that's been the fun part that's the part where you're really kind of in in the work with the clients um you know pitching is also i always say it's kind of the purest you know it has its own frustrations but it's kind of the purest because you get to bring your point of view and you kind of live and die by that um and then fires are fires but that's that's part of the job I think the interesting thing about pitching and, and maybe even more so at DDB is at DDB, you have these longstanding clients. And that's a really great thing because there's a stability to that. But it can also be problematic because the longer they know you, the longer they sort of only let you do what they have seen you do. With pitches, you and Wendy can walk in and you can be new and you can lay out a new vision of where you're taking the creative product and what you want the company to be and sort of like that reinvention is allowed to manifest itself in the room with, you know, through new relationships, right? Yeah, I think, you know, that that was definitely my ongoing assumption. I think as as I started to spend a little bit more time, you know, in the network, um, what I started to realize is, you know, this, this role never existed uh, for starters. So so there wasn't a North America CCO before me, right. uh, just office, office <clears throat> CCOs. Um, so now all of a sudden there was a creative leader, you know, at the same level as the as the business leader of the region. So so that's Wendy and I. Um, what started happening was clients who wanted more progressive creativity started kind of reaching out because now all of a sudden there was a kind of person to focus that inquiry towards. Right. So it's kind of interesting, you know. We 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 just did. Um, I think a, a really, really nice uh, piece of film for State Farm uh, that Aoife uh, McCardle shot um, that was all around volunteering, you know, after the holidays um, that, 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 you know, 
was a very creative piece for State Farm. It was, you know, it, it was lovely. I think uh, Skittles is doing something really interesting for the Super Bowl this year. Um, that again, they kind of, you know, really engaged with us on and and we're incredible partners and it's really different than anything they've ever done before and 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 that's really exciting and they they saw that opportunity and they came to us and they they pulled that out of us which was which was fantastic um i'd say mcdonald's you know uh the rick and morty work uh that they did and 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 the uh, mindy canling work you know that was all pretty different i would say from the stuff mcdonald's had done in the past um and it's interesting to see them you know, explore that kind of new model too. So, you know, yes, pitching pitching is an incredible um, way into totally new thinking. Um, but but surprisingly, I, we've seen a lot of clients uh, really st- kind of step up and go, show us show us show us the full extent of what you guys can do, and, and giving us the freedom uh, to to explore it and, and actually see it through. Yeah, your creative um, your creative taste that runs through your blood plus. The places that you've worked and the mentors that you've had kind of all add up to define, you know, what you believe to be the right way of doing things. One year into the job, what are some of your thoughts or observations on showing up to a place like DDB and imposing your way versus being open-minded to the way that's in place with, you know, the fact that you're there doesn't mean that everything's broken and that all the people need to be replaced. You have probably creative leaders who've been there for one or two decades who've been doing incredible work. Mm-hmm. So that sort of diplomacy versus sort of imposition of your way, what are your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, I mean, my my general approach has been, um, you know, when, when things are great, you know, obviously leave them be. When, when things... Um, you know, need need a little help. You know, obviously come in and help. Um, but I think I think the best way to come in, and this is just again, it's a personal approach, but is to come in and actually kind of get your roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, and send out a couple flares. You know, that indicate where we're moving, because I think you know, proving that you can do it within the network um, is the best way to drive other people to compete with that. You know, within the network. And do it themselves, and compete with one another, and you know, really push each other to be, um, you know, better creatives. So yeah. I think um, that you know that's been kind of the way I've gone into it. But it's yeah, it, look, there's so much greatness, you know. I think within DDB to come in and say, you know, this is wrong and that is wrong and this is wrong is is just silly, and it would be it would be met with deaf ears. The best way to kind of I think inspire is to do inspirational work and and ask everybody to you know try to follow suit right and it's and wendy had been there wendy had gotten there before you started and i'm guessing she probably cleared some of that brush so that your job wasn't to show up and tell everybody what wasn't working in fact the sort of stage was set um to a degree to start you know to start like implementing you know the values and beliefs that we believe get to great work yeah yeah no absolutely and i think i mean hiring i think hiring me was a big signal right you know of that you know and you know she told me you know very bluntly as i was coming in she said look i sat down with the leadership group of north america and i said do we want to hire a creative peer for me um because uh if we do you know that person's going to come in and they're probably going to say a couple things are broken and they're probably going to say a couple things are fantastic um but you know it's going to be it's going to be an agenda like are we all signing up you know for this creative agenda because if we're not 
let's not waste the money and let's not get frustrated if that person comes in and you know tries to push the work to be even better um and then you know they obviously all decided to do that and i came in and and so so she did she did set that up very clearly everyone agreed to do it and then in coming in you know everyone's everyone's kind of greeted it with open arms you equated your partnership with wendy to a marriage what makes working with wendy different than other ceos That's a good question. Uh, I mean, there's a million things. I think, you know, first of all, you know, in this business, you're, it's all about momentum. Um, and I think Wendy has probably some of the best momentum, you know, uh, at the moment in the industry. Um, this, is, this is about, you know, thought leadership and understanding clients' businesses. She's been on the client side for you know, in a rock star role for, you know, nine years before this, um, and, you know, many before that even, but um, at Coke specifically. Um, you know, she, she, she has that kind of rock star CEO status. So from, from the beginning, um, the, the winds are on your back a little bit. And it's funny because, you know, that's been one of the kind of things I've noticed at, on the big network level with, with a partner like Wendy, you know, at a lot of the creative boutiques, I wouldn't say the wind was on your face, but it was all about the work and, and the work, you know, you had to convince people that this really brave work would move their business forward. And, you know, they were always a little bit skeptical. And I think, you know, with a partner like Wendy, when we go in and we talk about some really brave work, they're really comforted by the fact that Wendy was a client before and that they know that she's looking at this brave work as not, you know, creative for creative sake, but for, you know, creative for the sake of your of the business, right. you know. Um, and it, you know, again, it all comes down to how this lens lenses up and how, you know, what people think your agenda is, you know, and I, I think kind of unfairly so. The agenda for every agency is always, you know, creativity to drive business results. It's not like that's different anywhere else. It's just I think you know when you have a more kind of mature and established leader and partner, um, you know, it, it, it's more tenable. But there, there are cliches that exist for a reason. I think like there's the cliche of the client who doesn't have a creative bone in their body and they're just trying to do enough to not get fired. And then there's the cliche of the creative who, you know, deep down would rather be in France painting and is using advertising to subsidize their art. Um, and when you bring someone like Wendy in who can sympathize with the with the legitimate concerns of a client, it starts to it starts to erode some of that cliche, and you can start having more honest conversations. I would imagine with yeah, clients. Yeah. Right? She said about you, he finds inspiration in the everyday. It's part of his magic. Every time you're in the trades, there's a quote from Wendy that's like this incredibly poignant compliment. Yeah. People already don't know what to do with compliments, and then you have this Jedi master of compliments. Yeah. Do you have to show up to work with like concealer on your face <laughs> to hide the blushing? Yeah, I mean, she 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 is so succinct and always gets to the heart of, of anything. I, I I'll, I'll ramble on this podcast for however many. That's hours. That's what podcasts are for. Yeah, however many hours you let me ramble, um, and she will find she will I guarantee it she will find the one smart thing I said in this podcast, and that will be like on the cover of the New York Times that <laughs> next day because she's just just how she rolls. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think. Um, you know, it's 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 one of those weird things. I, I mean, she has this gift of, I think, making people feel really good about it. And obviously, the compliments are, 
uh, terribly embarrassing, but like she does find the honesty in them, and I think like they they give you some confidence, you know, right. to be honest. And I think again, that's what great leaders and great partners do. They they kind of stand each other up, and you know, there's plenty of hard times too, you know. But to have that, uh, you know, kind of constant stream of, of reassurance is is a uh, is, is actually quite nice. One thing they don't tell you is the more you get promoted, the less people there are to give you validation. Yeah. And so it's all the more important that the few people <laughs> left who can provide that to you are doing it and you know doing yeah. it effectively. Yeah. Um, when you go from managing a small team to managing this gigantic team at DDB, are you still able to be the person looking at work on a wall and cutting it up with creative directors as much as you'd like? Or is, or is that not the job anymore? Um, you know, I'm forcing it to be the job to a certain extent. I, I don't know if I'm forcing it in a good way or a bad way, but, you know, it would be hard for me to get out of bed and not have that be a part of this, you know, part of this job. I think kind of in the breakdown that I said, you know, one third fires, that's not so much the work. Um, but the one third pitching and one third, you know, existing, you know, creative opportunity, um, you know, is very much the work. Um, do it in different ways. I mean, a lot of this is about, having great, you know, partners and, and leaders, you know, by my side so that, you know, they can do the great work. And, you know, hopefully, you know, a lot of the times it's, hey, check, take a look at this. What do you think? And usually it's like, it's awesome, you know, and that's that's the extent of the feedback, you know, right. and that's that's kind of what you're going for, you know, to be honest. Um, and then other times, you know, there's little pet projects that I'll dive, you know, deep into and, and, and be kind of... Um, you know, obsessive, I guess, uh, to probably to a point of unhealthiness. But again, it kind of just keeps me fresh. So I think I need, you know, I still want to do that to a certain extent. Yeah. Being in senior management means taking on responsibilities that have nothing to do with the parts of the job that you loved when you got into the business in the first place. Is there an aspect of management that you're surprised that you enjoyed, if I were to ask you about it, like 10 years ago versus now? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm actually I'm fascinated in what we invest in, you know, as a business, um, and I that that fascination started definitely started at BBH. You know, we had we had full transparency uh, as a leadership team on kind of all the numbers, um, and as I carried into this role, it, it was really important to me because I said, you know, it's it's easy to come into this role and have nothing to do with the numbers, um, but I said, you know, ultimately I want to be a part of those number conversations, and I. I, I'm well aware they're going to make my eyes bleed at times, but we can't make decisions about where we're investing, you know, in a creative business without a creative, you know, at the heart of that, you know, conversation. Um, you know, and I, I think in a weird way, that's probably what got me the job. You know, Wendy didn't want, you know, a creative, um, you know, kind of a sparkler. You know, she wanted somebody who was going to run the business with her. And I think, um, I think that's why it's working. Yeah. Creative Sparkler is a pretty good gig, though. Yeah, um, that's not bad. At BBH, you won Grand Prix for your Netflix campaign as a CCO. You've won a lot of awards, but winning them in in the big role is a different kind of thing. Did winning the big awards prove to be as validating as you sort of hoped they'd be prior to winning them? Did it lower the anxiety level at all? Um, I don't know. I, I think it was really, really enjoyable for maybe like 27 hours um and then and then it became um you know just just another day um 
you know, I was incredibly proud of the team, you know, that, that, that came up with it. I, you know, to be honest, didn't have, have a ton to do with it. You know, I, I kind of helped polish the narrative on the case study and, right. and that was more or less it, to be honest. Um, Does it just become another day or is it like, you know, like I was talking to somebody about, you know, you win an Emmy or an Oscar and you can dine out on that for the rest of your career. And our business, it just means that next year, if you don't match that success, it was a failure by comparison. Do you feel that? Yeah, I mean, there's always the pressure. I mean, I think I think we all feel it. You know, not that it's it lives and ends at Cannes, but you know, I think after Cannes, you're like, oh god, like we have to muster up the strength to do this again, and you got to show up in you know some sort of significant way. Um, you know, I, I was always I was joking with Wendy coming in because the year prior to, to to the year I came and joined DDB, they had zero lions uh, across North America. Um, and we we increased that count by I think the math was twenty seven hundred percent this year. So I think that meant we had eight lions or nine lions and you know fifteen shortlists or something crazy. Um, not crazy because a large volume, but crazy because that was that tremendous lift right. you know with with that. Um, but I think in a way that was a nice pressure to not have because you know going from zero is is kind of a nice way to come in um you know now we have to beat last year and and that pressure just continues to build and build as as you you bring the level of creativity up so i think um yeah that that definitely exists that that's a that's a real thing i think i've heard you talk about um the subject of sort of technology's relationship to creativity a bit in the trades you're a writer and a storyteller at heart our industry today puts a lot of emphasis on trendy tech and innovations. Do you ever feel like you're incorporating those things begrudgingly into an idea that would be better off and more simple without it? Not really. I mean, I, I'm 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 pretty I'm I'm a pretty big purist in that regard, in the sense that you know I'm super open-minded to n- new technologies and media behaviors, and and I think you know we are storytellers and how we still tell the stories do have to be relevant, you know, and, and to hold on to old tropes, you know, is, is meaningless. So I, I, it's not about being closed minded. I think, um, what I love doing is I love sitting in a room and going like, Nope, that's not the idea. Nope, not, that's not the idea. Nope, that's not the idea. And then, Holy shit, that's amazing. Like we can do that. That's something like, and I, that tends to be the dialogue we have in the in the kind of innovation type meetings. So right. I'd say 95% of them fall by the wayside, but 5% you're like, wow, that makes this idea so much better, you know, and, yeah. and you couldn't have done it two years ago, five years ago, whatever. Yeah. Um, you talked about pitching. You obviously get a huge charge out of pitching and there's an adrenaline rush that comes with it and a you get to sort of exercise your spirit of competition in pitches. And I know that's what I, that's part yeah, of what of I love about it as well. Um, and good ideas are only as good as our ability to sell them. Um, so what is your sort of thinking or your approach to the salesmanship of idea? And especially in your new role where the salesmanship of idea has a, a sort of a direct link to your ability to connect with CMOs. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, f- the first part is, is trust. You know, I think it's really about establishing a level of trust um, in the room and really let them know that you're not doing this for your sake, but you're really doing it to help solve their problems. I think, um, you know, it's a mistake. I think a lot of 
people make when they present. And I think, you know, if it doesn't come from a place of trust and a place of authenticity, um, it, it, it's, it comes off as Sally, you know, and, and, and we're not really in the salesmanship business in a, in a lot of ways. Mm. And I think, I think it's where agencies go wrong oftentimes is, is they think our responsibility is to sell our clients on something. And I think the reality is whether they're existing clients or hopefully soon to be clients or, or not to be clients, you know, what we're really selling them on is partnership and an ability to look at problems together and provide really interesting solutions to those problems. Um, so that's what I like. And I, I, my favorite part about pitching is that we get to dip in and out of different businesses and really look at different kind of cultural issues of the day because, you know, business drives so much of culture, you know, today. So that's, that's what I really, you know, enjoy out of it. And I really like looking at the problems, you know, from that perspective. Then what we bring in is just a creative articulation of that thinking, you know, but, but it has to start with that interest in their business and, and the interest to partner and, and really give them an outsized advantage against, you know, their competition. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on building relationships with CMOs? Is that important to your job? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I find that the more honest you are and, and the more um, you're willing to kind of expose both the positives and negatives of your thinking, um, that's, that's how the trust develops. When they know that you're not, you know, being self-serving about it, um, because I think they see that so often, they sure. see the self-serving side of it so often, uh, that when they see the authenticity and they see the true partnership, the trust develops, you know, very, very quickly. And then, you know, the next step is bringing one of those ideas that they, you know, developed with you and trusted you to you know, partner with them on to life. And once those are successful, the trust just continues to build. So it's kind of a um, self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think it kind of just builds over time too, you know, when you get to more and more trust, you know, as you go. And, you know, it's oftentimes what, you know, a lot of, a lot of the best work I've done has probably been, you know, second or third round in, you know, from, from after winning new business, just because the trust gets developed, they're willing to take more and more risk because they know that the risk isn't coming from a irresponsible place. It's actually coming from a place of outsized advantage. We talked about sort of like the pitfalls of, of, <coughs> Sorry. of, yeah, take a drink, please. We talked about the pitfalls of being um, a CCO at a young age. I know for me, like w one thing that was tough was as a, as a creative director, you find yourself, you want to be the hero and you want to go and like be the person who steps in and saves the day and has a great meeting. And it's a little bit different in this role and that like, okay, you can be the hero, but the truth of the hero is the hero doesn't show up to the meeting once every six weeks. If you want to be the hero, you got to be here in two days and then two days after that. And like, and as much as you would enjoy doing that on all your clients, that's just, you know, it's not realistic because that's not how you're going to be able to scale your impact. Yeah, yeah. And no. so like, as a result, you end up figuring out how to empower the people around you to be the heroes. Um, did that come naturally to you or, or do you have to sort of fight that? Cause I know you can do it if you want to, but yeah. with it comes, you know, it comes like, are you prepared to, are you prepared to have the follow-up meeting in two days? You know, is that, yeah. was that something that came naturally to you? Well, I think that was a, you know, if I'm being honest, that was a big fear. I think in going from, you know, BBH to DDB was, um, what do you, what do you do when you can't, you know, control it all you know we, right. we're all control freaks to a certain extent i think in yeah. this business um and you know 
it, it, the math made it very ob- obvious to me that it's impossible. You, there's no way you're going to be in control, you know, of all of this. Um, so, you know, a huge part of it comes down to finding great people who you trust, you know. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to inherit a lot of those people, you know, who were already at DDB and, you know, brought in Toygar and, and Colin and a couple other creatives that, you know, have been tremendous, you know, in early days. Um, and, and you just, you know, you develop that trust and you, you leave them be and you're there, you know, when they kind of raise their hand, you know, and say, hey, can you help out on this or that or the other? Um, but you don't, you don't come in every other day because you, you can't, you know. Um, you know, I spoke about those flares earlier and those are the ones that I kind of choose to come in, you know, every other day on. Um, but you can really only do, you know, maybe two or three of those at a time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you do, you have to pick and choose them. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of both. It's a balancing act. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and I have made this mistake in coming in, you know, early on was, you know, coming in every six weeks. And that's the worst. You know, you can e- you either have to kind of come in on a regular basis or come in when they call for you. You right. know, but to kind of try to kind of interject and, you know, obviously throw the wrench and send everyone in a different direction but not be there to help guide it, that's useless. Yeah. You know, so. I think the worst thing a CMO can view you as is like the closer yeah, you know, it's like, oh, this is, oh, is this one important enough for you to show up to? You're the closer, and yeah. it's just like, yeah. you, there's no way not to be defensive when yeah. when they view you that way. Yeah. No, and it's it's you know, it's always the new business question too, right? They're always like, well, who's the team we're actually going to get? Right. You know, and and to often, which you say, me, I'll be here every day. <laughs> well, I mean, oftentimes the, the lure of that new problem or that new project, you know, is you do want to think on it early days and get it going. And again, I think I look at new business as like one of those flares. So you set up the flare, you show what you're going to do on this type of business, and then you either recruit or move leadership around within the organization to, you know, take your place, you know, right. as it settles into its voice, you know. Um, but that that is part of the fun of pitching, I guess. Yeah, David Fincher directed... Right. The first season right. of House of Cards, or maybe right. just the first episode of House of Cards. Aaron Sorkin wrote the first two seasons of so you're West saying, Wing. You're saying I'm like a hybrid Sorkin-Fincher Jordan. Jordan. Yeah, That's good, right. Good. That's right. I was happy sure you we picked up clear. on that. Yeah, good. Um, are you a trust your instinct person, or are you a my instincts may be betraying me in this moment person? Let's stop and analyze whether my instincts are right or not. I'm. I, I have. I think I have very strong instincts, and then I have very strong anxiety. So I think <laughs> it's. It starts with a very, very clear answer in my head, um, and then I uh, go back and I doubt that instinct uh, for probably 24 hours, and usually end up settling back with with the gut instinct. Um, but there's definitely a um, torturous process uh, after making the first call, where I where I definitely. Uh, interrogate it violently uh, until until kind of making a final final decision. when your picture is going to be taken in the trades are you a smile guy a no smile guy or a smize guy i think i think i am a smile guy i started off as a non-smile guy but I've, I've evolved into a smile guy i think we need more smile people yeah yeah um as a manager um well you've been a cco now for i guess coming up on six years total between the two jobs um in that time you've had two beautiful children they're both young. Um, has parenthood changed your approach to management in any in any discernible way? Um, it definitely teaches you patience. I mean that that that's a cliche, um, but it definitely does. Um, and then also, you know, I think 
I've learned to turn work off more than I had previously. Um, still not as good at it as I should be, but I think, you know, I really do my best when I'm home to be home and, and not be working. And when I'm at work, you know, to be working and to not be at home. Um, so hard. Yeah, it's really, really hard. But I think the kids, the kids force it better than anything else. You know, when I, when I come home and I, I put my bag down take my jacket off and get down on the carpet and like, you know, wrestle with them or play a board game or, or build Legos. Um, you know, it's, that's my time, you know, and that's that in the gym, I would say the two times that like not work doesn't even enter into my, my mind. Um, gym mostly just cause I can't breathe cause I'm out of shape. Um, but with the kids it's, it's, it's pure pleasure, I think. Yeah. Another part of our job is seeing work our friends do and getting jealous. Yep. Do you fight the urge to feel jealousy or do you look at it as oh, sort I love of a the cheap jealousy. fuel? Okay, yeah. yeah. I love the jealousy. I, 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 um, I think it, it, it drives me. I love, you know, I love seeing anything that I wish I had done in any medium. And um, I think, yeah, I think that that keeps me going. By virtue of that, that means you love the feeling of exerting the feeling of jealousy upon your friends, colleagues, and peers. If you agree, blink three times. I don't know. He's I, blinking, folks. No, I don't. I'm, I'm yeah, I have a lot of blinking. Um, I don't know. Yeah, look, you always want to make work that your friends are. Yeah, I guess you do. You're a competitor. I'm gonna say yes. Yeah, you're yes. a competitor. Yes. How would your most loyal creative employee describe you? How would your most disgruntled creative employee describe you? Probably the same way. I think. <laughs> um, I think. I think. You know, there's a relentlessness and a and a kind of mercilessness to. Um, the obsession, you know, of the idea. Um, and, you know, I, I, sometimes I think I ride it to probably an un unhealthy uh, proportion. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, um, when it lands in that zone, you know, I'm equally ferocious. Um, you know, when we sell it through, I'm equally ferocious when we produce it. I'm equally ferocious in how it goes into the market. I'm equally ferocious in how, you know, everybody gets, you know, credit for it and, and, and really, you know, helps progress, you know, their careers and, and their partnerships and our partnerships with our vendors and everything. So, you know, it's a, I guess it's a purity and, and sometimes it's an unhealthy purity. Um, but, you know, for better and for worse, you know, I think, I think that's what would the people who like working with me and the people who hate working with me would say. Yeah. You have an, you've had an incredible career and you've had an accelerated career. And so as a result of that, you're not that far removed from being that junior copywriter. Yeah. Now, when you work with junior copywriters, do you see yourself sometimes in good ways, bad ways, obnoxious ways, inspiring ways? Oh, of course. Yeah. No, you see, you see all the mistakes you made, <laughs> I think along the way. Um, and you try, you try to help people shortcut them. And I, you know, I had, you know, lots of creative leaders who did just that, you know, they were tremendous in so many ways, but, you know, they obviously had their own pitfalls and they helped me, you know, avoid some of those pitfalls. Um, I think one of the most fun things, and this is, this is probably the kind of, um, you know, ego bit of it is, is finding people you, you know, are working with that you can recognize pieces of yourself in. Um, and, and you do, you just, you can't help but want to elevate them and, and, and help them go on the path because you see such, you know, 
potential in them. And it's not, obviously, it's not because they're doing it like you do it. It's just it's because you're on the same wavelength and you understand, you know, the way they're thinking. Um, yeah. So I find, you know, I find that kind of teaching piece of this to be one of the most satisfying parts of the job. You can work with obnoxious because obnoxious is like a byproduct of passion. I think like I, I can think back to like 2000 word emails I sent to Rob or to Andrew <laughs> at Crispin, yeah. just so fired up about like two seconds in an edit. Oh yeah. You know, and just like the nicest thing they did to me was just like, they let it go. They wrote back and they were like, yeah, man, it's something to think about. Like just let, they like, yeah. they didn't embarrass me at a moment when it would have been really easy to do so. No, I have all the patience in the world for crazy. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, this, this business, you know, it's all about persistence and, you know, the ability to get back up and, and, you know, in spite of everybody telling you you're wrong, believing that you're right, you know, it's just, it's so hard to come up with a good idea, let alone, you know, protect that good idea through to fruition. And the people who are really successful in this have that passion. So you don't want to extinguish that. I mean, if you, when you recognize that and see it, you want to help them use it productively. You know, there's, we definitely early in our careers use it counterproductively more often probably than we do productively. But I think that's one of the things we can really help steer. Yeah, it's a know? fire hose. Like, yeah. are you going to put out the fire or are you going to like drown 25 puppies? Yeah. You know, they can, they can do either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we talked about how early in your career you bounced around and got to experience a lot of different creative cultures. So in light of that, you're at DDB, a junior copywriter who, in your view, has a ton of potential uh, but hasn't maybe made work that quite has lived up to their talent yet walks into your office and they say, Ari, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've been here for five minutes. I think it's time to move along now. Um, I'm getting a a $700 raise to take a job down the street. What do you say to make that junior copywriter stick around? Um, I don't usually, to be honest. Um, I'm not big into convincing people in staying um, because I think if they're not happy, you know, then... Um, and, and they want to leave, they're, they're going to leave sooner, sooner or later anyway. And is it worth investing ultimately in them, you know, to, to just right. have them turn around and leave soon? Um, that is very different, however, than people coming in with grievances of how, you know, you could help make their job better. So there's a big difference. Between, you know, I, I have a ton of patients and I do always want to help those people who, you know, come in and go, I really want this to be great. And this is and that's getting in the way. And can you help me navigate this? Versus, you know, I'm 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 leaving because I don't want to be here anymore. So yeah. so, I I you know even even at BBH and I I do I always I always kind of tell people in that moment like look I know I'm probably supposed to convince you to stay but even just as a friend like tell me what it is and I'll tell you if I think it's better or not and I I really do tell people if I think it's better you know and right. and, and and a handful of times it has been you know absolutely as it relates to cultivating young talent. Um, have you ever found it problematic that a, a brash young creative maybe starts circumventing their manager and the chain of command to try to work with you directly? Um, probably more so at BBH than, than, than at DDB, um, probably just by virtue of access. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that, that always happens. I think what you try to do in that situation is understand why they're circumventing and instead of allowing the circumventing to occur, try to correct the reason circumventing, you know, is happening. Mm. Um, because it's only going to just piss 
everyone off yeah. you know at the end of the day and it's going to put that person in a bad position and it's going to put the person they were circumventing in a bad position it's going to put you in a bad position like nothing good comes of it sometimes it's not that treacherous it's just like Ari I have a lot of respect for your career and I want to work with you more closely yeah. and it's yeah. and, and like you sort of just you sort of figure out like that's a good thing absolutely um, and and there's plenty of times we dive into projects, you know, again, like these pet projects, you know, some of them are with really, really seasoned creatives. Some of them are with really, really junior creatives. And, you know, you want to do that. That's deliberate because you want to help lift everybody and you want to help kind of lead by example. And you want to help also, you know, in coming into a new system, you know, let everyone know how supportive you are of the work and how much you know wendy and i are going to defend it because all of a sudden everyone's like oh well if wendy's on board and she's protecting this idea as much as ari is like maybe that's how we're supposed to behave around great ideas and then you leave that project and you go on to another one and all of a sudden this group that just went through that experience starts operating like that without you you can you pass know? on this and question. you can pass on this question if you want but you compare the relationship to a marriage in a marriage kids tend to try to uh, play one parent off of the other do you guys find that that happens? And do you guys have sort of rules in place to to make to, to defend that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, we we talk like maybe 10 times a day. Like it's right. not healthy. Um, it's like a marriage is not healthy. No, it's hard to drive a wedge in between a relationship when you're in constant communication. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's a secret. And I think we very quickly let people know that when they were trying to communicate with one or the other, it was going to both of us. You know, and right. and I think that's what you do in parenting too, and and in a marriage, you go, look, this is this is where we are. This is how we stand on it. You're asking me for this, but you know where your mom and I stand on this, and that's how it's going to be. And that's you know, I think we, you know, Wendy has three ch children and older children, so she's actually a much savvier and developed parent than I am. Um, and and yeah, she she she's very very good at that. Fair enough. Next question. In the last five years. Have you gotten better at saying no to anything in particular? I mean, I think you get a general confidence, you know, the longer you've been doing this. Um, you know, early on in in you know one of our one of our pitches, you know, at DDB, um, the prospective client asked a question around, you know, what's what's your biggest uh, you know concern you know, if you were to get this piece of business. Um, and I turned and I responded with a very kind of, you know, prodding answer that was that was very much the obvious elephant in the room around the weakness of that particular situation, um, you know, that I probably wouldn't have done, you know, early in my career. And we ended up winning the piece of business. And again, I think it comes back down to the transparency and the honesty and the authenticity um, because they know that if you're being frank and you're having the hard you know, conversations um, that you're actually being a real partner. Um, so I think I think a general confidence, you know, um, which allows you then to say no to, you know, a whole myriad of things that you probably would have agreed to earlier in your career just because, you know, you felt like it was the right thing to do right. uh, from a, maybe a responsibility standpoint versus the right thing to do standpoint. In any chapter of your career, in a client presentation, what is the most horrifying response you've ever heard to an idea that you presented? <laughs> I 
<laughs> there's no way to tell this story without indicting. It's part whole, of the, I was telling I was telling Nick Law this. It's like part of the joy of this podcast is watching luminaries <laughs> of the industry try not try not Wiggle. to implicate themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there was there was one meeting in particular. Um, it actually wasn't. It was actually before the work, and we were getting into a conversation. It was it was you know the classic kind of new business situation where you're going around a table and introducing yourselves, and everyone says the title. And we went into this, you know, someone said, "I'm I'm I'm a comms planner," and this was a long time ago, you know, over ten years ago when the when the title didn't have quite the same, probably or people didn't understand the title probably quite the same way. And the um, head client at that time went into about a 45-minute tirade on, on the title um, <laughs> and ended, ended the tirade swearing um, significantly um, at, at this person and, and this person's title that they didn't care for. Um, and then they turned to uh, my partner and I and said, okay, great, now uh, show us the work. And li- I mean, literally, it had been a 45-minute tirade on this. And, and to set that up and then to show work... Um, you know, was was not the ideal situation. And then at the end of the work, it was, um, I think, something to the effect of, I hate all this work, um, but if my team thinks it's right, uh, I'll go along with it. (laughs) (laughs) To which we made the work, and it uh, ended up winning all sorts of awards and actually was very, very successful for their their business. But uh, it was uh, was a funny experience. Sometimes you have incredible client partners who you work hand-in-hand to create famous work with and enjoy the benefits of that work. And every so often in our careers, we grab a client by the back of their neck and drag them into work that only after the fact turns them into a star in their own organization, despite the fact that they never believed it in the first place. Well, it's funny, that relationship, that, that particular relationship wasn't, it wasn't actually a bad partnership. It was just highly dysfunctional and abusive. So right. what I mean by that is that it was actually a group of really smart people. Um, but it was just kind of a toxic-ish environment. Sure. Um, and look, that's obviously not ideal, but it's different than I think dragging them by the back of their neck into greatness. Like they were actually, you know, very very smart people. Um, it just it just had a different culture. You know, it was a, a brasher culture. Um, and then you have really really nice clients who you do incredible work with and trust you, and it's you know, a wonderful experience. So it's funny that you can get to work through a really, really pain, great work through a really, really pained, pained process or a really, really smooth, easy process. And obviously if you had to choose, you'd pick, you know, the former, but, you know, I guess, and I'm a little bit of a glutton for punishment. I'd rather go through the abusive, you know, process and end up with great work than go through a nice process and end up with work that, you know, ultimately doesn't work for them and you know isn't all that interesting and maybe ends up losing the business so you know at the end of the day we're here to partner and you know we have to fit into the cultures that we we choose to partner with well one way that we endure those um sometimes difficult partnerships on the on the creative side and on the agency side in general is we we complain um how much do you allow yourself and your team to complain about a tough client as a form of bonding you know, I I think my point of view on this has changed, and I think that's probably natural. But you know, I it used to be quite cathartic to complain. I think um, what what I found, you know, over the years is just it ends up just kind of slowing you down. Um, and instead of complaining, can you use that energy to uh, you know find the next idea or 
find a smart way to convince them to solve the problem or you know what have you. Um, I do think a certain amount of complaining is cathartic, so it's, it's not without its merits. I just okay. think dwelling on it, uh, you know, it's kind of like get it out of your system and then you know take on the next challenge. Potato chips can be cathartic too while you're eating them, but like they're ultimately sort of like empty calories, yeah. and I think it's sort of the same yeah, thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just moderation, yeah. moderation. I end every one of these conversations with the same question, which is. What is the idea that got away? What is that? What is that one idea? It could be at any chapter of your career that you just love so much that you can't forget that for whatever reason, you just couldn't sell it through, but you never forgot it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this was just because it was at the moment in time it was just a confluence of all the things that you know I've loved throughout my life, and as we were talking about, kind of the, I guess the. Um, cultural inspiration points through through your life. Um, when I was at 180, we had an assignment for uh, Bravia TVs, and they had just launched their uh, 3D series. And they wanted to come up with some sort of downloadable content uh, that could be preloaded, you know, essentially onto the TVs as incentive to buy, you know, a Sony 3D TV versus, versus another product's uh, 3D TV. Um, and they were, they were going to spend, you know, big on this and um i think it was like six months or maybe a year after michael jackson's passing um and they i think they had rights to the to the catalog and we had sold through the idea of having justin timberlake redo thriller um in 3d as exclusive downloadable content um if you bought a bravia um tv and it was signed off we were we were ready to go we had you know, a massive budget. JT was in, um, and then they decided to pull all support for Bravia TVs that year. Um, that was a tough one. Um, and looking back on it, I don't know. You know, maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not. Um, but just the idea of redoing Thriller um, with uh, Justin Timberlake um, in 3D, and we were going to get the original, you know, the original director and all that good stuff, um, would have been a very fun. I think cultural moment. Ari Weiss. That one hurts. That one hurts. That's a good one that got away. And when anyone asks um, how you can have an accelerated career, I would include that you need to be brilliant enough to ask to answer a difficult question like that with an idea um, that has a very clear expiration date. So that because you have other ideas um, that you could have said, but they're still sort of in the running. They're still in the mix. They're still alive. That one is dead. You know what? I've also never, I've never been given the opportunity, to, I guess, to talk about it to the three people who are listening to this. And uh, I, I like no, that. No, we now started on, with three people. There's on. one, there's a, my mom, my mom is still listening. Now. Yeah, my dad dropped off about 45 minutes ago. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get a bagel. Um, yeah, good stuff. Love you, man. Thank you for, thank you for making the time. This was a great conversation. And, uh, and, and I'm rooting for you, and you're an inspiration to me, and I and I just think you're a badass. So thank you, Ari. Likewise, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much to my friend Ari. Thank you to The One Club. Thank you to Jeff Fiorello and JSM Music for producing this podcast. And if you like the pod, please subscribe and share it and tell a friend. Till next time, peace. <laughs>